This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what are you drinking? Well, I'm actually, I'm double fisting today. Is that <laughs> exciting or what? Thrilling. Um, I'm drinking out of one mug, Starbucks, Keurig Starbucks. Uh-huh. Because as I told you earlier, I've been derailed. I haven't really had a lot of time. I did go downstairs to Hellfellow Well Met and had literally the best salad in all of Northwest Arkansas, for which they should win a James <laughs> Beard Award. It's that good. Wow. Um, all right. But I did not come back up with any coffee. So I'm drinking Starbucks from the Keurig. And I have another mug that is full of community coffee from home. It's one of those like thermos, like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, thermos mugs that keeps it hot. Yep. So I'm going to be uh, drinking from both over the course of this episode. And by the end, <laughs> I'll have a definitive pick on which is better. So it's been that kind of week, huh? <laughs> it's been coffee. St- mm-hmm. stupid. It's the double fisting coffee is that kind of, that's the week. It's the week mm-hmm. of double fisting coffee. So, get it. I get it, man. Anyway, mm-hmm. thus, it, thus it is. What are you drinking? I am drinking my, what I call Foxy tea. I drink it every year around this time from Trader Joe's. I think it's called Harvest, Fall Harvest, Autumn Harvest, something. I forget. You would think I know the name because we have like 20 boxes at home because it is a seasonal drink at Trader Joe's and I buy like all of it um, right now. And uh, I only drink it now. Because it makes me feel like I'm in the fall. And so here in Texas, I'm willing it to come. So I'm just basically, it's my denial tea. It's my tea of denial because it's... That makes sense. It doesn't feel like fall yet, but it kind of wants to be. And so I'm just helping it push it along. So... Are you... Is this the time of year where you're like, oh man, why do we ever leave Oregon? (laughs) You know what? That's It's more like in September, we're starting to head into the month where I'm glad we live here only because when I hear from people in Oregon, they're already complaining about the cold. So I like a nice long, slow fall winter and this Texas definitely has that, you know, uh, because it it takes its sweet time. Yeah. To get here. And then when it does, it's nice and mild. So to me, I I regret it more in August, September. All right. Well, I I won't Mm. tell Portland that you said so, or Oregon that you said so. Oh, trust me. I was going to say, I don't, I want to be anywhere but Portland right now. It's kind of a hot mess of a city, but Bend, where I lived, is gorgeous, like the trees and the the leaves. I've often heard this about Bend. I've often heard this about Bend, and I would like to visit there one day. Maybe I will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's stunning. All right. So, Seth. Uh, we kind of have this ongoing series we're going to do because I think for both of us, this topic takes like 12 parts, at least maybe, maybe a lifetime of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I shared a few episodes ago, my journey to the Catholic church, and I want you to take some time maybe to unpack that beast and, and talk to us a bit. So I'm, I'm curious, like why? What what's your starting point on explaining why you made the journey you did and like do you do things now like worship Mary and you know all all the stereotypes of <laughs> of what people assume we do like let's just let's yes. just talk about it man I worship Mary every day no I don't <laughs> that's hilarious I love that. I still love that I still think that's hilarious I think for <laughs> me my story goes back to um when I was a kid actually so we lived in a small town um, in Arkansas, 
kind of at the foothills of the Ozarks. And my parents weren't particularly pleased with the educational system in said small town. And so they moved us, my sister, me, they moved us to a small uh, Catholic school when I was in fourth grade. Um, and it was Catholic school in Fort Smith, Arkansas, which was about 20 minutes away, 30 minutes. We would later move there. That's where I predominantly grew up. But um, but we started, you know, with this little commute to this Catholic school. Now, I was very, very Baptist, even as a kid, even as a young kid, I was very <laughs> Baptist. And so you can imagine I had zero frame of reference for what it meant to be Catholic. Now, I will say my grandparents on my mom's side were Episcopalian, so I understood vaguely that there was such a thing as liturgy, yeah. um, which I thought was k- kind of weird, but yeah. I don't know. I only experienced it once a year and I was only 10 or whatever. So it's not like, you know, I'd only experienced it really like five or six times my entire life. So it wasn't like a huge mm-hmm. deal. Um, so I, I was pretty uninitiated into liturgy. And um, so I went to a Catholic school, uh, fourth grade, for the first time, I still remember the responsorial psalm of my first mass of my oh, wow. life. That's impressive. Um, so what happened is we we sort of walk in um, to class like after recess, right? It's right before you know we're going to go go into the, the church building, and we uh, she says to us, um, you know, we have mm-hmm. the response today, and the response is. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, which, mm. as you know, is taken from the Psalms. And so we had to say it several times. And then we walked over across the street. We walked into the church building. Um, and before we started Mass, the priest, again, like helped us learn and recite, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so it just kind of stuck with me like my whole life. Mm. Um, so anyway, my that was my first experience with the Mass. And I'll tell you, it was so bizarre to me like everything Mm -hmm. about it was bizarre because you know everyone seemed to know what they were doing except me right walked in people were putting their fingers in a little pool of water and crossing themselves and single filing into their respective pew and um kneeling down in prayer and there were all these statues around and yeah it was a really it was a really weird moment for me but during that moment sister sarto who was uh, irish and in my mind, Sister Sarto was about 92 years old, um, but I've seen her since, and she's probably she was probably 40. I was time. just about Maybe to say she was 40. probably 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I thought she was like ancient, but she was, of course, you know, younger than I am now. You know, right? <laughs> um, and and she she was really funny because she knew I wasn't Catholic, and so she reminded me no less than 3,000 times going over to the church that I wasn't supposed to take the Eucharist. Right. And I think the reason that she reminded me 3,000 times is because I didn't know what she was talking about. I was like, what are you <laughs> talking about? So she finally explained it to me. And then she kind of said, but during the passing of the peace, like, you know, th- this is you. This is for you. And so during the passing of the peace, I just remember uh, looking around the room and seeing all these kids reach out and say peace to me, even though I didn't know any of them. It was my first day of school. I didn't know what I was doing. It was my first time in Mass. And there was just something about that moment that was really uh, serene. Mm. And I think that's the first time that something hooked me in the Catholic Church. Was it, do you think it was like the ritual of it or the, um, 
the tangibleness of it that it was like you had the physical stuff to do? I mean, what was it, do you think? I, I don't know. I've always been kind of a head-driven person. Right. Um, I've always lived a lot in my head. Um, and this is not like a a new adult thing. It's not like an Enneagram party trick, like, oh, I live in my head um, right. or whatever. I might have been that way since I was a kid. And so there was something about the experience that made space to think and to contemplate and to listen and to pass peace and, I don't know, just to be yeah. that was very, very different than the church I grew up in, which, yeah. again, this is no shade at the church I grew up in. I very much loved it, and um, and, and I learned a lot from it um, growing up Baptist. But, you know, when you go into the Baptist church, it's loud organs the whole time, and when it's not that, it's a preacher at the front sort of being quasi-demonstrative, um, yeah. some might even say yelling, um, you know, when you go to your youth group or whatever, it's sword drills and, you know, just constant activity. And I think there was something about the stillness mm-hmm. of, you know, the, the 10 minutes before mass and even the stillness in slowness in the prayers that, that really led me to think, huh, this is different. And yeah. I kind of like it. I think I told you this a while ago, but one of the first times I went to mass, I thought the mics were broken because like the priest was just sitting there. After his homily, and I was like, "What's the deal? Why are we just sitting here?" And they're like, "Oh, that's the point." <laughs> yes, yeah, that is the point. That yeah. is the point. And isn't it funny? I mean, even still today, I don't know if you still experience this, but those moments when you know the priest, you know, gives his homily, and then he walks for us. He walks across, and then has, sits down in the chair that's across the stage. So there's this, like, you know, several seconds of him walking across the stage, and then there's he sits down and there's these several seconds of quiet. And often it's not until that moment of quiet, you know, that 20 seconds or whatever that I kind of, you know, I kind of like breathe out and, and realize, Oh wait, this is the point. Yeah. So, and what you said too, I think was really interesting in my experience as well, because it's both, like the Catholic mass is both fully participatory. Like we don't just sit there and watch other people use their gifts, right? We were invited. Well, we participate, we embody the, this service itself. However, at the same time, there's the paradox of, and yet it doesn't matter that we're there. Like it's not about us at all. We could be there or not be there. And this would still happen. And that felt very different to me coming from an evangelical background as well. Like there wasn't, yeah. it wasn't about me in the slightest. No, it's not about you. In fact, and this is a little bit of a side point, but it's a really funny side point. When I was, I was in my adult years, I had a really good friend. His name was Kylie. Um, Kylie's an amazing individual. And he was at the time contemplating becoming Catholic, which he is not, he did not do, but he was contemplating becoming Catholic. And every year, uh, Kylie and I, and it was like since college, we would, when we were back home for Christmas every year, we would connect and we would see if we wanted to go to midnight mass. Cause I just really loved midnight mass, even though I was still very Baptist. Um, and we would go to midnight mass together. And in one year, you know, well into our adult years, I was probably in my twenties. Um, we went to midnight mass. We ran into my old German teacher, uh, who was, who was named Mr. Lear. Mm-hmm. Kylie was talking to Mr. Lear and he was telling him, you know, I'm thinking about becoming Catholic. And Mr. Lear sort of laughed that, that sort of knowing German laugh and, and said, well, why would you do a thing like that, Kylie? And 
Kylie said, you know, I've been evangelical my whole life and I've always had opinions and I've always had, you know, avenues to express my opinion. And every time I've been in a church, people seem to generally like want to hear my opinions. But then when I share them, there's this (laughs) illusion that they're going to do something about it, but they never do. And he's like, you know what I love about Catholicism is I have all these opinions and it ain't going to change. It's been this way for 2000 years. My opinions mean nothing. And that's very freeing to me. And we just both started laughing. Um, But the truth is, that's the truth. It's kind of freeing. It's really freeing for sure. And so, but I'm sure you're not like thinking these things, right? As a, were you a teenager at that time? No. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I started in, uh, I was fourth grade and then went all the way through Catholic school, my ninth grade year, we did not have a Catholic school in high school. So starting Uh, my ninth grade year, I was back to the old Baptist church, but my dad became Catholic when I was in fifth grade, I think. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So at, for a while, I kind of actually thought that he did it for the tuition break, you know, because super convenient <laughs> to become Catholics and pay a few hundred bucks a month or less for your kids. Right. Um, but, you know, as I've matured and gotten older and become hopefully less cynical um, and watched him practice his life, like he's, he's, he's a true believer. Okay. All right. So you saw your dad, not your mom. So you kind of grew up with a little bit of a lot. Of traditions and practices, or what? Oh yeah, so that's part. That's a huge part of my story. So I actually became I, the way I've put it before. Before is I was a little bit of a spiritual mutt. So I was actually, um, I was very, very Baptist. Um, but my grandparents were Episcopalian. As I grew older, I started to learn more what that meant and became uh, enamored with, and really, you know, came to love and, and appreciate that tradition. Uh, my grandparents on the other side were Church of Christ. I would be not telling you the truth to say that I became enamored with that tradition. I did not. Um, mm. But I was Baptist. My dad was Catholic. And then when I graduated from high school, we went to a Church of Christ school, which is kind of a long story that involves um, murder and drugs and a trust fund that was given to the school, which allowed me to end up going there true story sounds, but i won't go into all the details that, right now that sounds like an episode of some like crime show it is it totally is and one day i'll tell it and you'll say <laughs> that's can't that can't be true but it's okay. totally true so i end up at this church of christ school and that's where things started to get really weird because you know i'd had all the all this catholic experience and and here i am in my bible classes and the professor at the front of the room is saying these things about the Catholic Church that are like patently untrue, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was taught very early on in my Catholic studies that, yeah, you know, the prayers to Mary, it's not worshiping Mary. It's literally asking your mom to pray for you, you know? Right. Praying with the saints is literally like asking the saints to pray for you. Just like I might say, Tish, I'm having a really bad day at work. Would you pray for me? It's kind right. of the same idea, right? And 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 they would say all these things about worshiping the saints and worshiping Mary, and I would say, no, that's that's not true. And then they would attack me for being Baptist and being like, well, you're Baptist. Why should we? So then now I'm defending the Baptist Church, right? And so, <laughs> um, so there were always these these always these weird moments where I was like really struggling with, you know, defending the Catholics or defending Episcopalians or defending the Baptists at this Church of Christ school. 
And it became really apparent to me that like, wow, like this idea of, of unity that, that Jesus preached, we're, we're, a, we're a long way from that. Right. Um, and I began to see sort of the, the way I would put it is I began to see that like pretty much we all have our own popes. Yep. Right, like, yeah, we can say we don't, and in the Church of Christ, they're like supposed to be non-centralized, um, but there are figures even within the Church of Christ who set sort of the doctrinal direction of the church, even though they would argue with me that they do not. They do. Well, you um, know, Kyle and I will the, say usually in the non-denominational setting, you're your own pope. So in that way, yeah, everyone yeah. really does have their own pope. Yeah. Yeah. And this, it goes back to Kylie's point, right? Like you have your own opinions and you, you know, express your own opinions and live by your own opinions. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I graduated, from, I'm gra- I graduated from college with this sort of like unsettling, um, you know, thought in the back of my mind and I became a Baptist youth minister. Um, and I was a Baptist youth minister for a year. I told them, I did not know if I was called uh, to be a, a pastor, or a youth pastor, um, I was an associate. I did the music mm-hmm. and the creative arts kind of stuff. And the the uh, youth pastor said essentially, "Hey man, just come on in here and 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 just see." And after about a year of that in Tulsa, I knew, yep, this ain't my bag. This is not for me. So Amber and I left. I went to law school, and for the next long period of time, you know, twenty ish years. Um, I led worship in evangelical non-denominational churches, um, yeah. and, and in one particular, uh, in, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Okay. That's a long time of just kind of letting that simmer, that idea of, of church and unity and liturgy and, and what does that have to do with anything kind of to let that percolate? Were you thinking all along the way or were you just kind of pushing it out of the, out of your mind? I mean, I, yeah, I thought about it all along. I've always been, I've always thought deeply and hard about church unity. Um, it's mm-hmm. always been a struggle of mine. Yeah. Um, I've also always remembered uh, the Catholic Church of my youth very fondly. Um, and some did not, you know, some my age, I'm in my, my early 40s or mid 40s. Some people my age, um, you know, had very terrible experiences in the Catholic Church, but, but I, mm-hmm. I didn't partly because I was an outsider, right? So I got to experience from the outside. So I always had um, just sort of a fondness for it. And then I started finding that in my 30s, and this was before my sobriety experience, I found in my 30s that like everyone I was reading that I really, really loved <laughs> was Catholic. Right, right. And that's when I was like, wait a second, I think maybe these people are speaking my language. Yeah, yeah. Was there a point... I'm I'm not trying to like put my story on yours. I'm just curious because this is what happened to me in that like simmering period when I kind of realized that in my Protestant upbringing, there was like 1500 years of history and thinkers that I didn't know about. It was like we talked about Jesus and Acts and then we jumped to Martin Luther. Um, did any of that come into play like the old thinkers or was this all new people? Not really. I mean, okay. The, I definitely read the old thinkers, but I mean, um, you know, I love Chesterton. I loved mm-hmm. the confessions. Um, although as we discussed, I haven't read that now in 20 years. Um, yeah. I loved, uh, Tolkien. I, you know, I love these 
Catholic writers and Catholic thinkers, but I also loved a lot of non-Catholic writers and thinkers too, right? Like I hmm. certainly read a lot of people who who were religious and yet not Catholic. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it never really dawned on me, this whole, it, the logic of it, I'm a very logical thinker, but I'm also a very emotional, I'm a deep feeler, I'm a very emotional person. And so the logic of, you know, well, I've only been reading 200 years worth of theology from you know, white evangelical dudes, um, that never really dawned on me because that wasn't really the argument that compelled me. Okay. You know, anyway. Um, and so I think a lot of that, that's one of the beauties of, I think, um, I'm going to say the church, like capital C church. And by that, I mean, like I'm expressing this beyond the Catholic church. I think that's one of the beauties of the Christian faith, the church, the Christian faith is that there really is room to appeal to those who are, uh, very logically motivated, uh, and there's room to appeal to those who are very deep feelers and emotionally motivated. Mm-hmm. And and the goal and the hope is that those who are uh, geared one way, as they come into a deeper expression faith, they 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 build right. If you're logically motivated and geared, you build the emotional connection and vice versa. Yeah. Um, so I would say this like sort of logical path of like, well, I had only really read 200 years worth of theology. That was actually probably a bigger deal to me post becoming Catholic than pre. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. I think for me, it was the other way around. So, I mean, and you're exactly mm-hmm. right. I think there are many paths to Rome. Um and kind of speaking of, I think one thing for me was this idea. I, I thought of the Catholic Church as another denomination, and yeah. it didn't hit me. I mean, I I'm, I would always think about, gosh, Jesus talks a lot about unity, and we didn't do a very good job of this. Um, but I think whenever I had a former Anglican priest turned Catholic explain that the Catholic church isn't another denomination. It was like the church. And then we created all these denominations. Um, When I first really started talking with you about all of this, it was back in 2014 in Italy and you were wrestling like crazy. I wasn't yet. Mm -hmm. You were wrestling Mm -hmm. like crazy. Like what brought you to that? Was it this idea of unity? Was it something else altogether? Well, that was right after, as you'll recall, that was right after I got sober. Was right yeah. after I quit drinking. That's right. Um, and so I, that that like that's actually the crux of my story. Mm, I, okay. I so so I quit drinking uh, in 2013, September of 2013, mm-hmm. and um, didn't touch alcohol at all, not a drop for over five years. And 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 so in that season that we were talking, it was very much in that in that early span of not drinking of, of being sober. And, um, and I will say just as a caveat and aside, I have now not been drunk for almost 10 years, which is, it's unfathomable. Um, but kind of awesome also at the same time. It's a big deal. So, uh, yeah, it's a huge deal. And a lot of that comes from, you know, the, my, my journey, yeah. Uh, into in into the Catholic faith, and so what happened was I quit drinking, um, and it was a very dramatic uh, moment. I tell all about it in my first book, Coming Clean. I write some about it in the book of Waking Up, which is the second book. Mm-hmm. And and there is one moment, there is one definitive moment where I made a shift, and this this I actually write about this very clearly in the book of Waking Up. 
And I went to um, a, a friend's house. There was a preacher from Portland who had come down. He's a dear friend of mine, still a dear friend of mine. He is from this sort of uh, Foursquare denomination, which is like this uh, sort mm-hmm. of Pentecostalish light denomination. Yeah, um, one of the best men I knew. No, his name is Greg, and Greg came down because they were looking at setting up sort of a monastic community for college students or a monastic experience for college students with an agrarian component, which they wanted to set up in Arkansas. So we sort of met together and we had this brainstorming night. And at the end of the night, my friend John Ray um, was there. And and if you read my writing, you know, John, he's an amazing individual. Mm-hmm. And he looked at the table and he was like, well, there's bread here and there's wine here. Let's take the Lord's Supper. So they start, Amber starts passing around. She's like serving the elements and she's to my right. So she has to go all the way around the circle before she gets back to me. And there was this sort of moment where everybody like, it dawned on them. Oh no, Seth hasn't had anything to drink since September and it's March now. So several months and we're about to offer him wine. What's going to happen here? Mm-hmm. And I had remembered this moment that my grandma um, had had said to me, if my sobriety can't withstand communion, then it's not actual sobriety. Oh, right? she, that's she herself had been uh, had been an alcoholic and and she had you know gone through the Episcopalian Church and had taken communion wine for years, you know, and that that was mm-hmm. kind of her mantra. And so as it came around to me, I thought, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tear off the bread. I'm going to intinct it. I'm going to eat it. And I did. And when I did that, I had a very, very, very visceral experience. And that very visceral experience was that I was literally eating something that tasted like flesh and, and blood. And I hmm. can't explain it to you. I know it doesn't make any sense. It wasn't consecrated by a priest. So like, listen, God's grace is big enough for, for this moment, right. um, for the Catholic listeners out there and for the Protestant listeners out there like i know this sounds insane but it's what happened it, it sounds and insane to both parties bro- yeah <laughs> yeah th- this is truly truly crazy shit i get it mm-hmm. yeah um and so i just break down there and mm-hmm. we leave and i tell amber what happened i can barely get it out and i'm like i don't know what just happened but i have to figure it out mm-hmm. so pretty shortly thereafter um pretty shortly thereafter we pick up a copy of uh Alexander Schmiemann's For the Life of the World, which is a North, he's an Orthodox writer. Right. We start reading this together and um, we read the chapter on the Eucharist, the historicity of it, the experience of it, all the things. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, holy crap, this is what happened. We have to find a place to celebrate this. We have to find a place to do this. And Oddly, what I did not know was at the same time, Amber was really wrestling through, uh, you know, the historical origins of the church. Yeah. And she had, somebody had sent her a link to uh, Father Groeschel, who is this old, um, this old monk. And, and uh, so she is listening to this one day and she breaks down on the floor and she starts crying and begging and saying, please, God, don't make me become Catholic. Like, I don't <laughs> right. want to do this. I think we all have that prayer at some point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. At some point that definitely happens for everyone who is not born into the Catholic church. Right. And (laughs) so she has this moment and, and, and then I'm having this, you know, kind of parallel experience. And so what we decided, um, because like, obviously I couldn't go take communion immediately right at the Catholic church. So what we decided was that, well, certainly the Anglican church is just as good, right? It's like the path, um, 
it's a similar path. They take the Eucharist very seriously. And, yeah. um, and so we made our way to the, this Anglican church. It had just opened. Mm-hmm. We went there uh, one Sunday and we, you know, our family of six doubled the size of the church overnight. <laughs> and okay. so for a series of years, yeah, that's where we went to really explore the theology of the Eucharist. It's so interesting how many convert stories involve the Anglican church. And I think the appeal yeah. is that via media, the middle way. Yeah. It's this idea of like, yeah. I can still be Protestant, but take the Eucharist seriously and take liturgy seriously. And that's not to throw Anglicanism under the bus. It was a huge part of my formation no. as well. So so it's just no, interesting it's to me how often how often that's the path. Okay, so you're in the Anglican church. And that was good for a while until it wasn't. So I know there's like all yeah. sorts of things that you don't want to get into. But I'm curious, what did you ever feel at home there? Or was it always a bit of an itch of like, this is almost not quite? I mean, yeah. yeah. So it, it's really funny. It's really funny. I have a good friend. Uh, first of all, several of my closest friends still go to that church. And we are uh, very, very dear friends. In fact, one's a business partner of mine. Mm-hmm. So um, so like I throw zero shade at this church. Mm-hmm. There was a priest there. He was actually just like an assisting priest. Um, his name is Paul. Paul's hilarious. And Paul uh, is still Anglican, uh, still an Anglican priest to this day. But we would talk all the time and we would start. And he's he's very Anglo-Catholic. Yeah. So his, um, like all his albs have Mary on them. And, you know, he prays the rosary regularly. And he has uh, a little altar set up his house where he prays his rosary. And he's just very, just a trip. And the more and more we would talk, the more I'd be like, yeah, this is kind of like how I feel, but I actually feel more Catholic about it than I do Anglican. But this is kind of a place where Amber and I can sort of reach this middle ground. And so we would have all this, we'd have all these funny conversations about like, would I actually become Catholic if given the opportunity? And so I think for me, I was always a little bit unsettled, but also like, it was kind of what I knew, right? I led worship there. I played guitar and, and it, was a place where I could do that. And I thought that would not be possible at the Catholic church. So it, it seemed like a good middle ground, but the long story short that I can tell, there's a lot more to this story that right. maybe we'll unpack later or maybe Amber will, but um, Amber went uh, into a curacy at that church. So she was supposed to be a curate um, and, and on her way to ordination, she was in seminary um, and as she went into that process, she began to feel more and more uncomfortable with the priest who had been called into, uh, you know, into the service of the church. And there were a variety of reasons for that. Um, but over time, as she expressed those things, things just got really disordered emotionally. Um, mm-hmm. And and it wasn't just between them. It was him and many people in the church. And yeah. And it got to be sicker and sicker and just not good to the extent that she was like, golly, this is so hard. Like maybe I'll just stick it out. And like, maybe that's my crown and glory is that I stuck it out, stuck it out through this ordination process. Well, you know, at this point I'm seeing enough behind the curtain because she's in the ordination process. And it's not just the curtain of her ministry. It's, it's really behind the curtain of like all of, all of it, you know, all of the stuff. And I finally go to her and I'm like, listen, I don't think I can do this. I really want to explore becoming Catholic. If that's okay with you, I'll still attend church with you on Sundays and, you know, I'll go to mass and then, you know, make sure that I'm here for, for your ministry and whatever. Um, but like, 
if you want to serve here um, with that particular priest, go for it. But like, I, I can't be under his care because it's not care. Mm. And um, she said that was fine. Um, blessed me to go. Knew that I had been thinking about it for a long time anyway. I mean, yeah. well before this priest came into the picture and probably well before that Eucharistic experience that I had. Um, yeah. And so she she blessed me. We talked with the community, including that priest, and they were all like, yeah, man, go, like, go, go explore, go do this thing. Hmm. So I, I left and um, I still attended on Sunday, still had worship, but I began to um, explore the Catholic Church and uh, entered RCIA, which is the the Rite of Christian Initiation. Um, I don't know what the, what is the A for? For adults. Academy? I don't know. It's for adults. Association? <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, it's for go. adults because they have a children's version as well, you know? And so oh, this is like... RCIC. Yep. So RCIA is for adults. Okay. <laughs> I guess if I would have thought that through, I mean, I thought I could have figured that out, but who knows anyway. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I started going through RCIA and that's that was the beginning of the process of me coming into the church, though there would be a, a hard pause on it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff that happens. And I get that. I mean, like we always said, this, this will be a, a mini part series because we can't not. Um, well, yeah. we can't explain it in 35 minutes or so. Um, that's right. I think... It's interesting to me. I, I remember a moment. I want to say it was like 2019 fall, maybe. I think it was before, like right before COVID. You and I were texting and you said something about like, hey, I think we're going to become Catholic. And I said something about like, I'm, I can't stop thinking about it as well. And I said, um, I feel like I'm Catholic and how in my brain and in my body, I'm just mm-hmm. having to like, I don't remember how I worded it, but basically have to go on Sunday to this other place. But otherwise, like everything in me is in agreement with this. It's just like that weird in-between stage, almost like a purgatory. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's a good place to park because I think there's a lot more to unpack. But I don't know. Like, if you're – put yourself in the shoes of um, a listener right now who's like – I, this is weird. I've had somewhat of a similar nudge, but I don't know what to do with it. What would you like tell this person? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would tell them what my priest told me at the end of my RCIA experience. So when we got to the end of my RCIA experience, I had a very particular question about Amber and her ministry. And mm-hmm. I went to him and I said, um, you know, yada, yada, she's going to continue in ministry. Um, you know, can I go there and not participate in the Eucharist there? And, you know, it was just this big question of like, what, what is, what would I do if I were under your care? And he said the, he's probably totally wrong. He probably shouldn't have said this, but he did. Um, but it was the single best piece of pastoral advice I've ever been given. And he said, listen, there are some things that are more important than becoming Catholic. And one of those things is being committed to your first sacrament, which is the sacrament of marriage. Hmm. Like that's that's your highest commitment right now. And he said, I will tell you that over and over again, I have told people to to pause and to pray and to be diligent and see what happens. Something might happen that changes the calculus. And and as <laughs> we can talk about in a, a later edition, that's exactly what happened. Things happened, the calculus changed, 
Hmm. And a year later, Amber would say, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to enter RCIA and, and, and become Catholic. So I think the first thing that I would tell people is like, this is not a decision that you have to make rashly, hastily, or even in the next year or two yeah. years. And I know like, we don't know when we're going to die and when the next day is and all those things. Like, Listen, I think there's enough grace for, for sure. if you were to walk out and get hit by a bus tomorrow, um, you know, <laughs> and you were like, oh, I thought I was going to be Catholic and now I'm dead. What? You know, whatever. <laughs> I, there's grace for all that stuff, right? Whatever. Yeah. Um, so I would say, first of all, like the the first piece of advice I give someone is just, just, just go slow down, man. Mm. Think about it. Pray about it feel it out, talk to your, the people that you're committed to, like whether that's your, your spouse or your kids or whatever, like have those conversations. Um, and I, I'd also say like, keep studying, keep reading, yeah. keep learning, keep, keep, you know, keep doing the things that, that brought you to the door in the first place. And then I think the, the, the last thing I would say is like, identify whether what's keeping you uh, from making any commitment to faith, first first and foremost, any commitment to faith, any commitment to Christianity, any commitment, well, to God, then to Christianity, then to the Catholic Church, like whatever, right, wherever right. you are, ask yourself, am I there logically, but I can't get there emotionally? Hmm. And And if that's true, start to unpack why that's true. If you say, I'm there emotionally, but I can't get there logically, Ask yourself why that's true and start to unpack mm. that and start to work on on that aspect. Like find what are the areas that are hanging you up and then do the work in those areas to see if there's something stopping you that that that's really just like a thing you need to let go of. That is some really good wisdom there. I think that's exactly what I would say as well, but not as I wouldn't have said it like that. And I'm, I think you put language to things that are so true because I think you're right that sometimes we kind of like, I picture, you know, a, a pubescent boy whose feet are bigger than his body. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of our process sometimes. And yeah. I was there logically, but had a lot of emotional baggage of like what it meant to be Catholic and what it would yeah. mean for me socially. And, relationally and all that. And I had a lot of unpacking for that more than the logic. And I could see how someone else, it would be the opposite or some other situation. Um, But I love that you just give kind of almost like not an assignment, but you give this like blessing to go study, because I think there's so much out there that um, you will have plenty to do in that regard. Totally. Like, you know, I mean, there's so, I mean, I will spend the rest of my life reading smart people I have never heard of at all. You know, there's so much out mm-hmm. there. So uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you've, you've got plenty you can wrestle with and pray over and all that good stuff without like necessarily just telling your spouse tonight over dinner, like I'm doing this and you can't stop me. So, <laughs> and that, I, to me, that's kind of the beauty of it is that there really is like, there's an ex- inexhaustible library uh, and richness of wisdom mm-hmm. Um that man, I that uh, to, back to your point earlier. I didn't understand how limited that library was yeah. in the church of my youth. It was yeah. very limited, and I didn't realize that. And now I'm like, oh my gosh! Like the gift of yeah. having uh, a treasury of not just literature, but literature, music, art, 
um, you know, prayers, all these things like just opened up to like learn and understand and use and, um, and, and really get to know it's, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And you feel like you've been given this inheritance into a family that's like bonkers. It's not talented as in the right word, but just like bonkers overflowing with gifts. And yeah. you get to be part of that family that you totally don't deserve, but it's a fantastic feast. Um, and you just get to eat like the rest of your life, all this really amazing Absolutely. stuff. And it, it it's, yeah, I agree. It, it just is. I think that's something I really appreciate as a convert that perhaps cradle Catholics forget is just like what the feast is and how beautiful and overwhelming it is. So yeah, that's really cool. Well, I definitely want to unpack more. I think maybe at some point we need to have Amber on because your story can't not be told without her, you know, because I remember, I remember her being like, Nope, not going to be Catholic. (laughs) That's that's for all these reasons. And then like, I felt like months later, she was like, I am a hundred percent on board. I am fully, I fully have jumped in the water and I'm not looking back. So I think it's worth telling. So, yeah, I think, you know, to put a button on it, I think pain, uh, can, can, can get you off high center. I think when Mm. you've experienced or endured a pain in a religious structure, um, Mm. that you hoped would be the answer, it can get you off center and, 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 I will say, and this is like, it bears saying in any of these conversations, like, hey, I get it. The Catholic Church has caused a lot of people pain. Yeah. Um, and not just those who've been sexually abused. Like, yeah. that's what comes to our mind when we talk about it. But it's created pain to, you know, average lay people. It's created pain to indigenous people. Like, like these are not small things. Right. Um, and yet where we are in this phase of life, like we've, we've actually experienced a lot of healing in the journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I love that. Yeah. We'll unpack more of that forever. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably. Okay. Well, that's a great uh, place to pause and ask you, Seth, what might be adding more beauty to your very hectic days right now? Oh, this is an easy one. So, oh. We were with some friends on their farm, Jared and Lindy Phillips. They are fantastic human beings. Jared's okay. a professor at the University of Arkansas. He's a writer. He's written a book called Hip Billies, Hip Billies, which I think everything one needs to put down everything and go read it. Uh, all right. It's a book about the back to land movement in Arkansas Ooh. and all these crazy California hippies who came out here and learned from uh, you know, the hillbillies in Madison County or whatever. Right. Um, so it's a great book. Um, but he had a, they had a sorghum pressing out on their hmm. property where they took okay. sorghum and they pressed it and boiled it down into molasses this weekend. At the end of the sorghum pressing, they had an old timer come out and teach us how to square dance, which I did not participate in because I neither dance nor am I square. Uh-huh. I'm terrible. I, it's awful. I'm awful. You don't want to see me do it. Um, <laughs> but but we were talking about poetry, uh, Lindy and, and Jared and Amber and I were talking about poetry. And the next morning I woke up and Lindy had sent me a poem, which I will not read because I don't have permission to. But mm. uh, I just read her poetry um, and I've read it several times since she sent it. And it like it's not famous. It's not well known. It's crafted from the hills of the Ozarks. Um, I love it. And mm. it is bringing so much goodness to my life right now. I love that. I love that it's both poetry and it's local and you can't share it and no one can find it. <laughs> That's cool. 
Yeah, you can't. You <laughs> literally can't find it unless you know Lindy's number, and then you can call her and ask her for it. <laughs> right, right, it right. That's fantastic. So good one. So Not Tish, good. what are you uh, engaged in? What are you into right now yeah. that is bringing more goodness, uh, truthfulness, or beauty to your own life? Well, as you know, last weekend I was at uh, the Catholic Imagination Conference, and along with it being a head explosion of information and super smart people and just, you know, being in the same room with all sorts of people I wanted to meet, it was also a delight to be reunited with people I just really love. You know, uh, mutual friends were there, Bond and her husband, um, whom we spent time in Italy with. And uh, we also, I didn't yes. tell you this, but we had brunch with Hope and Holly and it was so fun. I saw the photos. Them. I know. It was great. You oh, were missed. So good. And then yeah. I I missed out on getting to hang out with Rick and Stephanie, but Bond and Reese did. And it was just, it was just so fun to, to see these people. And my initial reaction was, like from all this just goodness is to like sit down and write and get words down on paper and unpack all this smart stuff. I, um, that, you know, I was taught, I guess over the weekend, but instead I made a playlist. It's like, I needed a playlist of music to, Mm -hmm. to, it was like, I needed that to process the beauty of friendship and knowledge and awesome. the craft of writing instead of like the utility of writing. So I created an all, uh, autumn playlist and I've been listening to that all week long and it's just been really delightful. And it's nothing, um, I mean, it is amazing because I, I like all the songs on it, but it's just your classic folksy autumny music like Fleet Foxes and Hippocampus and Jose Gonzalez and Milk Carton Kids, but then also just some classics like Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. And it's just been good. Like, it's been a good reminder to me that I'm more than a brain, you know? Um, and you're going to yeah. share that, right? I am. I'll put it in the show notes. It's really good if I say so myself. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure that we'll all agree. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I will definitely share it for all who want to imbibe and pretend like it feels like autumn outside, even though it doesn't here in Texas. So, Do you know one of the best shows I've ever seen hmm. was the Milk Carton Kids? Yeah, so I've seen good. them in person too. So good. So, so good. good. Just yeah. talented, funny, uh, just the whole package. I'm a little bit jealous of them. I'm not going to lie. It, yeah. They're, they're annoying how talented they are. Uh, but yeah. Go see them if you can. All right, guys. It's time to wrap this chat up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. And you can also go there to help support the show by picking up the next round of drinks. Uh, you can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, how about you? You can find me at sethhaines.substack.com. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenwriter. I'm Tish Oxenwriter with Seth Haynes, and we'll be back here again with you soon. Thanks for listening.